right. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Gaucho Amigos. I'm Alex. My guest today is singer-songwriter James Jackson Toth. Uh, He also sometimes goes by the moniker Wooden Wand. Now, here's the thing in terms of the guests I uh, have on here. You know, most of them I invite due to my connection to them through their place in the Steely Dan world, you know, whether it's from Twitter or something they wrote online. But, um, you know, James is someone who I really know through his own work, you know, through his music. Um, When I was in college, this was uh, during the time when James was touring and releasing records with the band Wooden Wand and the Vanishing Voice. I came across an album they did called The Flood. And, you know, it's a relatively obscure album and uh, quite experimental, but something about the timing of when I got into it, it was uh, kind of a big album for me. You know, I had it in heavy rotation. And over the years, you know, James has been very prolific. Um, I haven't listened to everything he's done, um, but whenever I do listen, I always really dig uh, what he's doing. So. You know, fast forward to about a month or two ago, I saw James pop up in one of my replies on the Twitter account, and he kind of alluded to being able to talk a lot about Steely Dan. So, you know, given that and given the fact that I was familiar with his work, I shot him a message saying like, hey, open invitation to uh, come on the podcast and uh, talk Steely Dan. Uh, And yeah, he took me up on it. Uh, We talked and uh, it was great. Uh, James has a new album dropping with his latest project, James and the Giants. Uh, The album is self-titled and it comes out on Kill Rock Stars on June 30th. The single off of that uh, is called Hall of Mirrors and uh, is today's outro music. So stick around for that. He's also a member of the band 111 Heavy. Uh, They recently released a new album as well. It's called Poolside. Uh, And James has even uh, done an entire podcast himself. It's called The Toth Zone. And it's kind of uh, about music fandom and growing up in uh, pre-9-11 New York. So uh, check that out if you're looking to add another music podcast to the rotation. Finally, I uh, just wanted to mention that we'll be off next week. Uh, After 12 straight weeks of uh, new episodes, I'm taking a breather um, as we head into the summer season. Uh, There will be probably quite a few gap weeks, Um, but, you know, I'll still have uh, new episodes for you throughout the summer. Uh, Thanks again to all who have listened so far. It's uh, it's been my pleasure and uh, great fun. So without further ado, this is my conversation with James Jackson Toth. Enjoy. We have actually met before, but it was it was so brief and so long ago that I, I honestly can't say that I have uh, any memory of it, but I, I know that it did happen. Um, Where was that? That was, okay, so this would have been as far back as uh, 2007. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. As a, uh, a college student, um, I actually booked Wooden Wand and the Vanishing Voice to play a show. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I hope we weren't dicks. <laughs> <laughs> My memory of that day is kind of foggy. So I'll, I'll just yeah. give a, a little bit of background and then, because I want to tell the story. It's pretty funny. Yeah. And then we can kind of, you know, ease our way into Steely Dan. But um, as a college student, I, uh, you know, so it was my senior year. 
I was just spending all my free time just like listening to music, you know, uh, playing music with my roommates, smoking weed, like just doing that thing. I, I was more on the psychedelic kind of trip at the time. I was not into Steely Dan. And I remember one of my uh, roommates slash bandmates. I can't remember which of the two because they were um, very similar musically. You know, they were, they were both religious right. studies majors as well. And they found Ooh. the flood. And they were like, dude. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that kind of blew cool. our minds. And we were, we were spinning that a lot, actually. Cool. Uh, I was in, in heavy rotation. And then I also booked shows. And yeah, I, I don't remember exactly how it happened. But um, we booked you guys to play a show. Uh, and, and usually the shows were like to a small, like the shows that I was kind of booking, it was like, smaller budget, like very small audience. Um, yeah. It was usually just like the big music people on campus would come and then like a few weirdos, you know, from the local area. Because this was in uh, upstate New York. But the one that I booked you guys for was like this big event. And uh, it was like a co-event with like this campus activities organization. And uh, the the people of the campus activities were not pleased. And I actually got banned from booking <laughs> shows because of wouldn't want to the vanishing voice. I'm sorry, Alex. That's a great story. That that makes my morning. Thank you <laughs> for that. Um, yeah, that's funny. You know, you you sort of think in an idealistic way that um, you can convert people. I mean, if you've ever seen like like children react to free jazz, they just dance. You know, they they love it. They just hear the exuberance and they feel the energy. And you like to think that grown-ups who are not exposed to stranger or more experimental music would react the same way but a lot of people have a bias for whatever reason sometimes they're good reasons but yeah it's it's tough to convert a normie for lack of a better word <laughs> to that sort of thing but um yeah well actually i mean i think you did convert some people because some of my friends who are not like big music heads were just kind of blown yeah. away by the the vibes of it um you guys are really <laughs> like charismatic performers in your own way it was yeah it, it translated to some it was just this particular person was just a dick and gen like we, this was an right. ongoing struggle i'd had with this like sort of kind of petty bureaucrat that worked in the campus activities uh <laughs> group that had oh, been going wow. on all year and that was like the last straw so right. <laughs> he kind of he kind of chewed us out but it was it was like second semester senior years it didn't matter at all he just wanted to like lay right. into us and uh show that yeah. he had power but uh yeah the set was great i mean i i kept listening to more wood blonde I, I listened to um was it gypsy freedom i think the one that opens with the sax yes yeah, yeah. daniel carter playing on that one yeah oh yeah yeah that was a fun, that was a fun record yeah yeah i like that one and uh james and the quiet i listened to quite a bit i really like that album and yeah, I mean, I haven't listened to everything that you've done over the years. You're quite prolific. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've, I've listened to it all maybe once each. So oh, you don't worry stuff. about it. There's a lot, yeah. Um, but I have to say, like, I, I do have some sort of, like, uh, I am kind of happy in, in some way that we were the last straw. I, I like that, that you know, distinction. <laughs> like, this is where we draw the line. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think it was really the, the setting of it. Um, if Again, if it had been one of our, you know, kind of usual, more low key, like often weeknight shows, whereas maybe like 100 yeah. people at most, it would have been great. But like, right. this was like a big event. It was like, right. it was really geared towards a, a larger campus audience. And I, 
I was so deep yeah. into this world of like, you know, I was doing college radio. I was getting all the CDs yeah. on the racks and I was like, there's so much incredible music. If you like psychedelic music, yeah. like there's bands like Wooden Wand and The Vanishing Voice. Like you got to see that. I was so excited. I wanted to blow people's yeah. minds, but I think <laughs> maybe I was I was too deep in at that point and didn't really uh, right. have a good grasp of like, you know, my audience or whatever. But yeah, the perspective, the matter pers of perspective. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But since the pandemic, this is the longest I've gone without touring since like 97. So it's a, it's a strange feeling to be home all the time. Yeah. It's weird. Are you, um, are you going back out on tour with, because uh, I know you're doing uh, 111 Heavy now. Are you going to be touring with them? Yeah, 111 Heavy have a European tour coming up this summer. It's about three weeks in like Western and Central Europe. And then when I get back, I'll kind of regroup um, when the new record, my new record on Kill Rock Stars comes out on June 30th. So after that, I'll probably just regroup and figure out if touring makes sense and then just take it from there. Awesome. So, yeah, I listened to uh, Everything's Better, which I. I oh, cool. I really love. Yeah, I, I've been kind of like, yeah, I've, I've been getting back into, you know, some some more of that, <laughs> the more psych sure. uh, oriented stuff recently. Finally. Yeah. Because cool. my my musical journey has kind of been like you know all over the map, um, and it sounds like that's yours as it is, should be. Yeah, yeah, that's as it should be. I think it's it's um, as long as there's more things, there's you know it's just there's not enough time in the day. I just I always want to, you know, I guess the FOMO thing is pretty real for me, where I just I want to hear everything. So I, I you know, but uh, you you can fill your time that way, and it's a lot of joy in doing that. I find I mean it's it's a reliable way to 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 kind of lift your mood, so. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind of, um, yeah, it takes me wherever I, I need to go when I need to go there. And, um, you know, I, it's funny. Cause like, you know, for you, for example, like, um, I remember hearing James and the quiet coming from gypsy freedom and it was so different. I mean, it was like, yeah, it just showed that you have like a lot of, um, you're, you're versatile in, in your, like <laughs> your background, you know, cause that yeah, was, I mean, like, I don't, I I guess I just don't really I don't really discriminate when it comes to genres and things like that. Like I'll I think every every kind of music has has value, and sometimes the fun is trying to find the value in it. I remember um, a story. Um, I won't go on and on like this, but um, a friend of mine many years ago, two thousand eight, we were making a record. A drummer named Otto Hauser, who you might know, he was in Espers. He plays with Cass McCombs, and he's a great drummer, a great dude. But he was telling me he was talking about the Soul Cages by Sting. And I was like, ah, oh, really? Sting? Like soul? I mean, I like the police, but, and he was like, yeah, dude, but the drumming. And I was like, oh, okay. Cause it's Manu Kache and all these amazing drummers. I was like, oh, cause he's a drummer. So he's listening to that. And if he can isolate that, you can find this incredible 
path into something like that. And that was a really instructive moment for me because I, I try to do that now too, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, sometimes I'll just be like out in the world and you'll hear something on the radio, a song that I never liked, you know, as a kid, but then I'm, you know, hearing it 20 years later and it's like my whole musical brain has kind of like shifted or developed or, you know, it's gone on this journey and I'm, I'm hearing like, um, it's, yeah, like when I started to make my own music, you know, and you start to put on those layers and those different, you know, little instruments, you start to hear all the, you know, instruments that even, you know, what you thought was a generic pop song, like there's a lot going on in some of those songs. So you start to hear different things and, and different sounds and textures. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, when you're a kid, like the, your experience of music is just a person singing on over a background. You don't think about like, right. oh, wow, he's bowing the bass on that. You don't think like, <laughs> where that tambourine come from you know it's just it's a kind of a different experience it's cool to revisit that stuff that ubiquitous stuff and listen for those things when did you start like hearing you know stuff like that when did you start like even making your own music how old are you i mean uh, officially i was kind of a late bloomer i didn't really start writing songs until college i mean like a lot of people who like music when i was a kid i would make weird recordings on tape recorders or sing weird songs to my sisters or the dog or whatever, you know, but as far as like taking it seriously, I, I didn't really start writing until like freshman year of college. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, when I was in high school, like speaking to my omnivorous tastes, I used to rap and stuff too. Right. Cause like hip hop was really big, you know, growing up in Shaolin with Wu-Tang and the rise of that. Like, so a lot of my friends um, were into to, to rap music and hip hop and I was too. And so, yeah, like lyrically, that's kind of where I started writing was writing like rap verses. And then <laughs> when I sat down with a guitar because my experience with guitar before that was just metal. Like I learned how to play like Slayer riffs, but I couldn't play like a, a D7 chord, for instance, you know? So I, when I, when I combine like the lyrical aspects of what I learned from hip hop and then like you know, my my rudimentary skills on guitar, that's kind of when I started writing proper songs, if you will, capital S songs. So, you know, it was, yeah, it was a late bloomer. Yeah, well, you've come a long way. And, and metal is an interesting uh, uh, reference point because when we were getting into the flood, you know, like I said, I was in a three-piece psych band and both my roommates were kind of coming from a metal background. And um, yeah. I think in the flood they they heard a little bit of that like it it was kind of doom laden or apocalyptic is was it I mean was metal an influence on on the stuff you were oh doing? for sure yeah for sure in fact it, it it really thrills me to hear that they heard that um, even more so on the previous album Buck Dharma like I was I feel like we were channeling a lot of that um, I was fortunate and I I kind of was raised in a metal oriented family um, my dad really liked like Ozzy and Judas Priest and my cousin was in a heavy metal band. Um, he was in typo negative. Oh yeah. So, and for that carnivore and stuff. So like a lot of people, my cousins all liked metal. So metal was not a way to rebel in my family. It's more <laughs> like you would rebel by like listening to ice cube or something. So <laughs> um, yeah, metal is definitely in the blood. And uh, I still listen to quite a bit of metal, not as much as I did when I was young, but it's uh yeah, it's fundamental for me for sure. Yeah. You know, well, it's funny. Cause I've, I've uh, found that quite a few metalheads actually appreciate the Dan, which which you wouldn't really? necessarily expect that. Yeah, but I've I've found that like um, I don't know some people I follow on Twitter like they're mostly posting about metal, but then they're like yeah, <laughs> they'll throw Dan stuff out there and they follow the account. So I wow. don't know what it is. That seems yeah. unlikely to me, but that's cool. I mean, that I think that just speaks to their appeal, which is very wide and and getting wider all the time, which is crazy. <laughs> 
yeah. you know. When did you start getting into uh, Steely Dan yourself? Do you remember? Yeah, my dad was really into music, but my dad was a singles kind of guy. So he would make mix mixtapes for the for the car on family trips and stuff. And so like there are like Ozzy Osbourne and Fleetwood Mac and Steely Dan albums that I only knew half of until I was like 17. You know, for the first half of my yeah. life, basically, I just only knew these songs that he liked and didn't hear the ones he would leave off. So I distinctly remember like do it again and dirty work and there were a few deep cuts like I think he liked uh, turn that heartbeat over again there were just a few songs that he liked and then you know growing up into metal and punk and stuff like I didn't really pay attention to the deep cuts until I started working in record stores back when you could get Asia and can't buy a thrill for a dollar you know yep. they were in the dollar bins which is now it's not the case but <laughs> I just started checking them out when the store was slow and I just slowly really got into it it was actually peg like interesting what you were talking about earlier about rehearing something as an adult because peg is a song i'd heard most of my life but when you really listen to peg it's just it, it's a it's an incredible it's a perfect song and to me that was the way to kind of get back into that stuff and really go deep and when i go deep into something i tend to get very obsessive i'm sure a lot of your listeners will relate to that um, so I went kind of down crazy, like sophomore year of college and just okay. never really looked back. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like you, like most of my childhood was just listening to singles on the radio because CDs yeah. were pretty expensive. Like I would only buy a few a year and then the rest of my music listening was just because I, I wasn't really a music head, you know, as a kid, I would just like buy 10 CDs a year at most. And then whatever right. I heard on the radio was what I knew. But then, so yeah, I kind of took this musical journey. I was discovering Krautrock and ambient music and all these, you know, genres and, you know, I was making friends with people who knew a lot more than me. And then it was kind of in my 20s, you know, I heard Babylon Sisters and I was like, what is, wait a minute. And then I got yeah. really obsessed, like really, really crazily obsessed with, uh, and yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Babylon Sisters because I think I think Gaucho is 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 very close to a masterpiece. I would put it, and I know that's not a popular opinion, even if I'm still again, but I mean, my my favorite Steely Dan record shifts all the time. It's it's usually like the, there's a there's a there's like four that are always vying for the number one slot, similar to the Velvet Underground or Black Sabbath or uh, the Ramones, even like like yeah. whatever of their great four records I'm listening to is my favorite. It's like this is clearly the best one, and then you listen <laughs> to another one, you're like, no, this one. But Gaucho would be in my four, I think, and I, um, I just think that's such a great record, and I never really understand people's aversion to that record. But anyway, just because you mentioned Babylon Sisters, which is, I think, is a, a yeah. terrific, terrific song. You know? Yeah. Well, it's funny. Yeah, because I still feel like some people have that aversion. Like even a couple episodes I've done of this, the people who I've talked to, the reason I talk to them is because they're huge, you know, Steely Dan people. And they're still not down with Gaucho, which I, you know, I can't understand that. It, like, it's my probably my favorite of their albums period i mean it's I great and yeah. it's funny because like you know the, the one there's only one steely dan record that like i don't pull out a lot and, and that's pretzel logic i don't know how much you want to go into like the finer points of these records but to me like pretzel logic <laughs> is is the only is the only steely dan record i don't love okay um of course i i know it by heart and i i like it very much but i feel like after track three it really takes a takes a dive for me. And I think a lot of it is because they were recycling old material from the Jane America's period and the, you know, the, the songwriting periods. And you can hear it. I mean, the songs are just kind of embryonic and not, you know, like Barrytown. I, I don't know. That's not my, <laughs> that's not my jam. But uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Charlie Freak. Yeah. yeah, I don't so, I don't like Charlie Freak. It's my least favorite Steely Dan song. There's something about it I, I yeah. don't I can't dig. I don't know why. It just sounds it sounds beneath them somehow. I don't know. It's just you know. Yeah, I mean the appeal of that one for me is just kind of they're kind of throwing darts at the board. I don't know. It's just I enjoy the sort of scattershot nature of it where it's like there's a weird, you know, East St. Louis Toodaloo cover next that to Barrytown, yeah. which is a very kind of I kind of just like the scattershot vibe of it. So I'll throw it on and, yeah. and get into that. But in terms of this song for song, it's not yeah. as good as pretty much anything that came after in terms of like, yeah, 80 lied through um, even the Nightfly, you know, and then yeah. I don't know how deep you go with the, like the solo repertoires. And, I know uh, deep. Yeah. yeah. Morph the Cat. I mean, Morph the Cat, <laughs> I think is a boundary record. Uh, the, sunk, the whole sunken condos. I mean, that that's just I think that's great music. And I, I love that listening to Fagan's solo is, is so fun for me because you can really hear what he contributed versus what Walter contributed. And I'm sure other people have talked about this, but um, just hearing those those distinctions and, you know, and obviously on Walter's solo stuff too, it's just really, but yeah, I love Fagan's solo stuff. And Nightfly is basically like the last Steely Dan record in a lot of ways. It just carries on from, from Gaucho in a way. And I just think that's a really important record for for their story you know yeah but. yeah i love the nightfly i mean yeah i feel like and i've talked about this before too but um i don't hear that much about morph the cat or sunken condos or some of these later ones which is yeah. odd because they're the most recent so you think people would have yeah. uh, a little bit more but it's never come like with all the steely dan twitter shit that's gone on i don't hear that much chatter about like even sunken condos which came out while twitter existed so i, don't, I, yeah. I was a little surprised I think, by I that think, i think kamikariad will have a renaissance i really think that record is going to be something that people rediscover a good friend of mine who's a fellow steely dan fan my friend george bought me a copy of that on vinyl because it's obviously it's very difficult wow. to find it's yeah. very expensive that was a really great present um because he knew how much i love that record almost as much as he loved it but we both always geek out about that one. But yeah, I think that's a record of, of, of the records in his solo discography. I feel like that's the one people are going to find because it's just so slinky and funky and just awesome, you know, but yeah. 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 But I forgot about East St. Louis too. You're, you're right. That is pretty great. I love, I just <laughs> hate that Duke never got to hear it. I guess he mm. died very shortly before that got released. I wonder what he would have thought of, of that tune, you know, but we'll never know. <laughs> Yeah, well, the one thing that uh, it's kind of great, if it's true, it's kind of a rumor, but apparently, <laughs> do you know the, uh, there's a greatest hits compilation from the 80s called The Decade of Steely Dan, or no, is that mm -hmm. what? Yeah, it's A Decade Gold? of Steely Dan. Oh, yeah, yeah, the red no, cover with FM at the end, right? Uh, well, it, start, it opens with the extended FM. That's what it yeah. is, okay, yeah. Yeah, and then... Um, Funnily enough, they threw uh, East St. Louis on there. And uh, the reason is because Donald and Walter wanted the Ellington estate to get royalties on that track, which was. Oh, well, that the... certainly makes up for some of their less scrupulous <laughs> feelings with Uptown Baby and whatnot. So, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> that's yeah. cool. If true. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there, there's some mixed uh, reputation on, on that front in terms of, uh, you know, how they've handled, you know, the sampling or you know some of these hip-hop artists um not so not... selective yeah it's selective because they were like oh yeah kanye go for it man but like they really they really i don't know that uptown town funk thing's kind of weird but 
Uptown yeah. Baby, right? What's the name of yeah. the Yeah, Uptown Baby, yeah, they didn't. Uptown they, Baby, yeah. They demanded 100% of the royalties. Not their best look. Yeah. Um, no. Agreed. I think it's easy to take them for granted as lyricists because I put them in a category with people like Joni Mitchell or Van Morrison or even Springsteen because these people are known for something other than being lyricists. But if you look and you read them on the paper and you really listen to them, you realize they're 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 peers with any of the great lyricists in pop music that you can name. And I think um, Becker and Fagan are definitely in that conversation because um, there there are so many layers and they're so funny, you know, and they're so, I mean, they're clever, but to me, they're not self-consciously clever. I know that some people, that's the issue is that there's, there's a pretentiousness, there's a self-conscious cleverness to it, but I don't hear that. I hear that it's a perfect balance, um, you know, so, uh, but as far as influence on me, it's really hard to say. I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure everything that I hear is an influence, but Consciously, it's it would be impossible for obvious reasons. I mean, I can't hire Bernard Purdy, <laughs> and in the in the times that we're living in, too. Like, can you imagine making Asia remotely? I mean, the time <laughs> and the money that was spent to make those records is is crucial to to what they are. And I don't think we'll ever hear records like that ever again, which is really a shame. So yeah, it's hard for me to be like, let's do the Steely Dan thing. Oh, actually, this is a funny story. Um, <laughs> I was I was talking to different producers about I did one record on a, on a major and um, we were talking to different producers and I had my wish list of course and one of the people on my wish list was Nico Bolas okay. um, who, who records with who records Neil Young he's recorded Neil Young for years and so Neil Young is a, is a big uh, influence on me so I, I had dinner with Nico Bolas and I was thrilled and I was like I was like so what I want to do is kind of like make a record like Asia and he jokingly got up from the table and shook my hand and was like, it was very <laughs> nice to meet you, James, you know, which I thought was such a great thing, you know? Um, so yeah, <laughs> I, I guess they have been an influence, but it's just, it's this unreachable bar. You can't possibly do that. And that's one of the things that makes them so special is that what they did is not really repeatable at all. Yeah. You know? It's not that environment or that ecosystem of record making doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, you could try, you know, to do something like that, but obviously not on the yeah. scale or with the budget or with the, the time i mean you have to tour now you know bottom line if yeah. you want to have any you know any chance of making it in music right now their only way to really you know earn a living is to tour a lot so yeah. the whole doing the studio only thing that's you know it's such such from a bygone era um mm -hmm. yeah but it's so enviable they were you know, <laughs> tour the first three records and be like eh, we don't really want to do this we're just going to obsess over the minutiae of this record you know, that just sounds like that's my idea of a fantasy. Like some people want to live <laughs> on a Caribbean island and some people want a Lamborghini. Like I just want to make records all the time, you know, every day. Yeah. And that to me, that's that that just sounds like such a, a nice, I don't want to use the word privileged, but it's such a such a great way to, to make a living. Um, so yeah, I mean it's just it's I, but what you said is interesting though, because it, it would be cool if somebody you know, some 22 year old kid with like Ableton tried to make Asia. I think the results <laughs> would be really interesting. I think that yeah. could be a really cool thing. But as far as like achieving that, I think it would be very difficult in our current climate to do it. 
you know. Yeah. And they they get a lot of flack, you know, for kind of it's one of the things that people still talk about Steely Dan is just their um, you know, their perfectionist tendencies and how much right. they, you know, quote unquote made these musicians, you know, do take after take after take and how, you know, even by especially by Gaucho, they'd already had a track record of making amazing work. So I feel like if you were a session musician, I would, you know, wouldn't you just want to kind of go where Donald and Walter were taking you? And so I have a little bit of a, a classical background because I was in orchestra in school. And, you know, when you're preparing to perform a symphony, you're doing, you know, you're playing portions of that over and over and over. And there's an incredible fine tuning of everything from, you know, dynamics to, to, you know, tempo. I mean, it's just, yeah, as obsessive attention to details to get, you know, the performance when you do it on that night. So it sounds good. Right. So I've never quite understood. I mean, if you want to say that that is antithetical to the spirit of rock music, you want to go with that argument. Okay. But I've never quite understood why they're almost portrayed as villainous for doing this. Right. <laughs> you know, I've, it's, it's, they wanted to make something great and they, you know, they worked hard at it. I don't know why they get flack for having, you know, you know, strong work ethic as far as I'm concerned, but. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the thing is like, none of those musicians were like, they were very happy to be there. They were getting paid union wages probably. And they were, they were making music. That's what musicians do. I, <laughs> I don't understand how couching it in this labor issue. I don't, I think that's also, again, very selective. I mean, Zappa was way harder on any of his musicians than Fagan and Becker ever were. And I mean, I mean, if you think, I mean, if you look behind the scenes of like Rolling Stones records, like, you know, they probably gave Nicky Hopkins a hard time too. It's just a weird how people just suddenly just kind of seize on this one band, this one example. And this was my problem with the Albini thing that happened <laughs> recently too. Which I don't know how much you want to get into that. It's just, it's a weird like selective bias against this music and um and the way it was created and i mean the, you know the, the proof is there in the records like the, the classic albums episode on asia which is one of my favorite hours of television of all time <laughs> so when when they're pulling up the different solos and they finally get to jay graden's you know you know seminal perfect solo it's like you see how they arrived there and without going through that process yeah they would have had a good solo but they wouldn't have had that solo Right. You know, and think about the, the the legends and geniuses that they were just like, no, it's not quite right. I mean, that's incredible to think about. And the, just that level of attention to detail, I think, is very admirable. And um, I think some of the greatest works of art in, in all medium and all media have have resulted from that sort of meticulous attention. And, and sure, I, mean, I, have a, I have a Neil Young tattoo. I get the whole spirit <laughs> of rock and roll thing, but I think there's more than one way to do it. And look, if those records were only okay or, you know, just good, you know, sure, cast it as arrogance, cast it as pretentiousness, right. but they're not just yeah. that. They're masterpieces. And it's, I don't know, I just don't yeah. see, you know, like Albini, that one of the, that ridiculous thread that everybody lost their shit over, you know, one <laughs> of the, <laughs> one of the things he said, uh, you know, most of what he said, it didn't, whatever, Steve Albini is going to be who he is. And, you know, right. we, we, I'm happy to get into it. But the, the one part of the thread that really did bother me was um, he said, there are two types of perfectionists. One will prepare, revise, and rehearse carefully with intent, honing an idea to a keen edge, ready to cut the cloth of execution. Uh, which is, you know, it's a well-crafted sentence, but he then goes on to say, 
The other makes uh, the other makes other people responsible by saying do it again until by chance they are satisfied, then take credit. I feel like the part that he misses is that I actually think Steely Dan falls into the the first part of that and not the second. Me too. Me too. Yeah. I mean, it's not like solos were written out. I remember reading an interview with Walter where, you know, the, he was talking about how bass parts weren't written out. Like what they didn't play was not written out. Obviously the song structure was there, but I think there's, there's a lot more improvisation on those records than people give them credit for. Um, you know, you don't, you don't tell Wayne Shorter exactly <laughs> what to do, you know, I mean, who would do that? And they knew enough not to do that. And it's just, it's just strange to me because, um, like Albini's a smart guy. I mean, he's, I, I respect Albini. I've, I've, I've listened to his music and um, I, I think he's a positive force in general. However, it's weird that in this one aspect, he's, he's, he just seems almost like out of touch, which I know is ironic given that we're talking about the classic boomer band, but just the fact that he can't see this for what it is. And taste is subjective. So it's not really about taste. It's just about this sort of like character assassination that just seems <laughs> so weird to me. And, 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 you know, the guy produced a Bush record. I mean, and, and he knows how records are made and it just seemed to come out of this weird reflexive punk rock. We don't like the dinosaurs thing, but he loves Dolly Parton. You know, he's tweeting about how much he loves Dolly Parton. It's like, I don't know. It's just it's just a strange thing to, to have this sort of outsized reaction to this one band. It's like the the Eagles scene in the Big Lebowski or something. You know, it's it's like now an entire generation hates the Eagles and they <laughs> don't really know why. Yeah. You know, it's just to me it rings it's the same sort of spirit of that and it just seemed I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it was, uh, you know, he was projecting on some some level. He's fearing his own obsolescence by seeing that Steely right. Dan is, you know, really popular again. So he was trying to, like, you know, uh, restore the order of, you know, punk being the cool, you know, way to, you know, interpret rock and roll and Steely Dan being, you know, he was trying to uh, preserve the narrative to make himself because he kind of prefaced, he said, I'm the kind of aging punk. Which if you have to say that, are you really punk? You know, if you have to call <laughs> someone who says I'm punk isn't usually punk for my. Yeah. But yeah. What's the, what's the David Berman line? Like punk rock died when the first punk said punk's not dead. You know, <laughs> um, I've never heard that. That's great. Yeah, that's great. It's a lyric in one of the Silver Juice songs. <laughs> but yeah, it's like I see you saying I'm one of those punks. To me, that like shows the cards not to make a, a poker reference when discussing <laughs> Steve Albini, but it shows the cards because it's like yeah you're part of a of a, of a previous generation of, of gen xers who, who anything with a whiff of boomer excess whether it was pink floyd or steely dan or whatever was just considered the enemy and i i understand where that comes from but you also have to understand that albini i think is on record as like hating jazz which i think okay. speaks a lot to his aversion to this this music which is like I guess it'd be like the perfect storm of things Albini hates, which mm -hmm. is studio perfection and jazz. So maybe it makes sense. I don't know. Yeah. It befuddles me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on some level, I was kind of like, okay, Steve Albini doesn't like Steely Dan. Like, that makes sense. I'm not going to get mad. Right. And people all lost their shit. And it was a little bit much for me. But like, at the it same time, crazy. I just disagree with his ethos and his stance. And, um, I don't know, like so for so long, I personally didn't listen to Steely Dan because I feel like that kind of wisdom had been passed down to me. And, you know, it, yeah. you know it's it's too bad that there are still people that are kind of going around and toting that narrative about Steely Dan. But 
probably fewer than used to. I feel like now, you know, yeah. people from all swaths of, of musical backgrounds have seen the light and are, uh, you know, are Steely Dan fans. One other thing about that is, um, do you know the Minutemen cover of Steely Dan? Oh, yeah. Of course, Dr. Wu. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So just the fact that they did that is really... pretty cool. Sorry? I'm glad you mentioned that because I did I did a, a review for the Talk House, which will be out next month, of oh, the great book by Alex Papadimus and Joan LeMay called Quantum Criminals, which I highly, highly recommend to everybody listening to this. And I don't know. I mean, I, Joan is an acquaintance, but I can't say either yeah. of these people are friends. So I'm not. I'm on the level, but um, it's an incredible book. Um, but I talked about that very thing about how, you know, the Minutemen, no one would ever call the Minutemen not punk, you know, I mean, that's the quintessential punk band in, in, in action and, and everything else. I mean, in ethos. And um, I believe the story was that Hurley, the drummer was the, was the Steely Dan guy and, and D Boone and Mike Watt kind of went along with it sort of, but <laughs> yeah, that's probably the music they heard growing up. So I, I think that's a great cover. Strung out here all night. I've been waiting for the taste you said you'd bring to me. This cane bay where the Cuban children sleep all day. I was searching for the song you used to sing to me. Katie lies, you can see it. Imagine my surprise when I saw you. Are you with me, Dr. Wu? Are you really just a shadow, the man that I once knew? Are you crazy? Are you high? Are you just an ordinary guy? fascinated by life on the road in general and like touring oh, yeah. in that world um can you relate because you've you've been you know doing the tour you know you're like i said i don't know road dog is kind of a weird term but i mean no that's good the, that works that yeah. works yeah it's not, it's not pejorative yeah i like yeah. i like dog yeah you've been a road dog and obviously you know steely dan literally had to quit because they they could not make it on the road. I mean, do you want to talk about your experiences a little bit and, and touring life? Cause I, I think you kind of allude to maybe wanting to write a book about it. And I, I would, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I would buy it. <laughs> Cause it was oh, great. Thanks. I mean, I, I mean, I think, I think maybe the time to write it would be, will be soon because I think that the touring network that I grew up into and inherited from, you know, black flag and wherever um, is going away. So I, I do think it's going to be almost like a cultural anthropology issue pretty soon because I don't think middle-class kids can pile into a rented van and travel across the country the same way they used to anymore. I think those days are kind of rapidly disappearing. Uh, maybe I'm wrong and I hope I'm wrong, but yeah, when I read about Steely Dan being like, we can't deal with this. It's like, you had buses and, you know, staying at the Radisson is like, you wouldn't last a day in the van with, with our, with our band, you know? 
but um, I don't know. It's just, it's just for me is like the, the adventure of, of being able to tour. And that's what I miss post pandemic is not so much like getting up on stage and playing music. Um, but it's, it's the adventure. It's waking up and not knowing what's going to happen and being, you know, in, in weird places with your friends that you've never been before and meeting new people. And it's just, it's one of the greatest ways that I know that you can travel and, and experience things without having to spend a lot of money or any money to do it. Um, you know, I didn't grow up with money. Um, but I remember being like on, on planes, going to Finland and going to Barcelona and going to Greece and being like, wow, the only reason I can do this is because I'm a musician that 99.999999% of the world has never heard of and never will. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. And yeah. um, so I, I love that about touring and I, I love, I love the idea of touring. Uh, but the older you get, the harder it is. And it's one of the only businesses in the world, the music business where like the longer you stay, the harder it gets. Um, and especially now with the economy and with streaming and everything, it's, it's kind of like we're, we're, we're in the great depression. It's like a, renaissance in reverse is what i've been saying you know so i don't know i don't know how long it'll continue but i certainly am grateful that i grew up when i did and i was able to do it at a time where it was easy to do and um i mean it's, it was still crazy then i mean yeah. my, you know our, our parents and and our like co-workers still thought we were insane to do it yep. you know but but it was it was possible and it's, it's still possible i don't want to discourage anybody from doing it i just think it's it's different now unfortunately yeah, I mean that makes me really sad to hear, especially because, I mean, how how deep were you rolling with the when you were touring as Wooden Wand and the Vanishing Voice? Because I remember when you played, you know, um, at our school, like I think it was like a seven or eight piece band. Yeah, there was a core of like five people at certain. It settled into a core, but it could go okay. as many as like ten or eleven, wow. or you know, it really never went below five at a certain point because we did start to feel like we were a fixed membership band. And then we would augment that with people who we knew along the way who we could play with. And obviously the other thing about touring is like, you make a lot of friends and um, I still have a lot of those friends now. And and there's people I haven't seen in 20 years that I, I still consider good friends. Cause I know when I'm next time I'm in Philadelphia or Boston or, you know, Madrid, I'm going to hang out with this person and we're going to have this shared thing that we have. And, then, and that's really special to me. Um, so yeah, I think it was just more about the network and, and just it's this really small world man i mean if yeah if you want to get out there and tour you know you'll you'll meet every mid-level band you've ever heard of at some <laughs> point you know whether it's in the green room or at the gas station on the way to the gig like you'll you'll find that it's a really small ecosystem which is really cool yeah i, I don't know if i could handle the tour like i like to sleep in my own bed i like you know <laughs> yeah. after two hours in the car i'm like i'm ready i need some fresh air <laughs> i can't like road trips for me. You'd be surprised. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe you I would get you. I think um, you would. I think you'd fall into it, you know, yeah. but. Well, what I love about it is just the freedom and the open road. I mean, it's kind of a cliche, but like going yeah. back to whatever, like Kerouac and shit, like it's just, there is something beautiful totally. about just being like, you know, not tied to a desk or just, you know, you're literally just going around America playing music for, for people, you know, just regular people. Yeah, I think there's. It's better than that. But, you know, every every choice is a choice unmade to, you know, not to get too philosophical about it, but, you know, it can be a grass is always greener thing because there are friends of mine who have regular lives and normal lives. And there are parts of that that I envy very much because I feel like when you're young, you make a decision to do something and you don't really think about the long term of it. I'm not saying I would have done anything differently, but, 
you know, I'm a 44 year old man who sometimes has to like do all kinds of crazy, weird side hustle gig economy type things. Cause yep. I, I really don't have a job resume. Like on paper, I'm, I may as well be an ex con, <laughs> you, you know? So I would say like the cautionary tale is like, yes, I think that freedom is important. And I think that th those things are fun and I wouldn't trade them, but it's definitely a trade-off. But I mean, you're still doing it, right? Cause I, I saw that you oh, have yeah. a, a new album or two new albums. I mean, I think 111 Heavy has an album and also your solo. Yeah, the 111 Heavy album came out last month, I think. Oh, okay. And we're gonna go on that tour. And then the, the new album is under the band name James and the Giants. And um, it was recorded with my old friend Jarvis, who was in The Vanishing Voice and is in Woods and was in Purple Mountains. Um, and that'll be out on June 30th. But yeah, this is this is all I do. But at this point, like I said, I can't explain a 25 year gap on my resume. So like, what else am I going to do? When I was in college, you know, and I discovered stuff like Wooden Wand and The Vanishing Voice and, you know, some of the other bands that were doing, you know, psych folk or psych rock. I just feel like there were literally like hundreds of bands doing it. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I don't hear much about the music that was being made in that space, in that world anymore. And maybe it's just my own yeah. circle, but like what happened, <laughs> you know, is it just, well, I mean, <laughs> I actually do. I actually do have a theory about this. Yeah. Um, and um, my wife um, was actually, starting to outline a book about this period that you're talking about yep. um specifically this sort of new weird america whatever yep. but but broadly more like the, the american underground during this period i consider this like the myspace era okay and what i mean by that it was it was at a time where people had, were transitioning away from physical media although they were still buying like cdrs and things like that but we hadn't quite jumped into the streaming you know, like everything online all the time. So I think a lot of that stuff has just been lost to time because we can still buy a Pink Floyd record, right? But And we can hear anything we want on streaming. But that whole middle period, bands like Sunburn Hand of the Man, you know, like just producing CDRs and selling them on tour, like there's really no record of a lot of that stuff. And I do think it's under-documented. Uh, whether or not it has value to the larger world, I can't say, but having been part of it, I think it does. And I'd like to see some sort of documentation or archival work done on that because it is, I think you're right. I think you've um, hit on something because it does seem like there's a there's a missing five years somewhere when people are talking about, because it feels like it, it, re, it's, it, it sort of restarts with Animal Collective. You know, it yeah. kind of, you kind of like, there's like the, the end would be like, nirvana to elliot smith or whatever and then there's <laughs> and then nothing happened and yeah. then animal collective and it's just it's a strange thing having been a part of it to see that kind of just but most of those people are still making music and and many of them are making great music yeah um so they're out there uh people like tom carter and ben chasney from six organs of admittance yeah. and i mean just all these um sky green leopards all these people are still active making music and you can find them out there it's just how do you how do you find anything these days <laughs> you know yeah. gotta, gotta weed through a lot of stuff a lot of a lot of input i feel like it's probably just just a a, you know, a comprehensive box set away from mm. becoming a thing again and then it'll disappear again as these things always do but um but yeah we i do think it's an underdocumented time we need the nuggets of uh, of that. I don't know what that would be. But... Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> we'll call call uh, call Light in the Attic or uh, <laughs> Numero Group and have them get on that because I yeah. I would love to participate in something like that. Yeah.
Oh. Uh-huh. 